Listen up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Louisville Urban League's radio show and podcast. I am Lyndon Pryor, and I'm president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. It is so good to be back with you um, again this week. Um, hope that you enjoyed your um, Halloween, for those who celebrate, uh, festivities. I know that it has probably been uh, a crazy week and weekend with all things um, that have been going on. If you were like me and your child is in a school that did a costume day on Friday, and you've got piggy children like mine who also said they wanted to be something different on Halloween, then that was probably really exciting. But hopefully it was fun times for everybody and you were not too hung over from candy um, and the sugar high of it all. But most of all, I hope that you have had a safe, restful, and productive week thus far. Remember, you can catch us here on the pod every week. Um, we release new episodes at, on, on Thursdays at noon. Um, be sure to find us anywhere you get your favorite podcast. Uh, be sure to subscribe, rate us, review us, let us know what you think of the show. Um, today is a special day because today starts early voting. And so, as you all know, we've got a huge election here in Kentucky, um, as well as some other significant races uh, going on. And so please, please, please get out to the polls and make your voice known. Um, you can visit any of the early polling locations that are available. Um, just show up and go vote. You don't have to go to your particular precincts um, on these days. Just be sure to go. Voting is today tomorrow and Saturday, and then election day will be Tuesday. So please, please, please get out and vote. If you want to help us turn out the vote, um, come and canvas with us, knock on some doors, go encourage people to get out. We're going to be doing that this Saturday. Um, all throughout the day, um, you can visit the Louisville Urban League's website and click on volunteer uh, to sign up. Come out and join us um, so that we can turn out the vote together. Uh, lastly, also in honor of Halloween, I want to be sure to thank Jack Harlow and the Jack Harlow Foundation. They reached out to us a few weeks back um, in order to do a special giveaway for Urban League families um, and provide costumes for Halloween. So they paid uh, for costumes for kids uh, from Caulfields here in the West End. Um, and it's been an amazing experience. We had 100 kids um, to participate. And uh, you can check out our social media to see some of those awesome pictures. But thank you, Jack. Thank you to the Jack Harlow Foundation uh, for your continued support of the Louisville Urban League and those we serve. Now, on to the stuff for this week. We have another phenomenal guest and friend of the league, Ms. Amber Duke is here from the ACLU of Kentucky. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Um, so we're going to do this the way we always do. I don't really do formal introductions. I love for people to tell us about themselves. So please give the people the quick and dirty on who is Amber Duke, where are you from, how did you get here um, and arrive at this place? I'm going to immediately jump outside of the format of your podcast. Okay. Um, since you were talking about voting, I thought it was a good moment to shout out the Election Protection Hotline. Yes. So the ACLU of Kentucky helped support the back end of the Election Protection Hotline. Mm -hmm. That number is 866-OUR-VOTE, which is 866-687-8683. So folks who are going out to vote early, if they have any sort of issue that happens, you get there, you know, I can't get my ballot, there's something with my ID, they're telling me. If there are any questions or concerns, you can call that hotline that gets routed to Kentucky. One of my colleagues is one of the attorneys that's helping on the back end, and we will try to help people out. So we make sure that people's votes are counted. Yeah. So I just, while we were together there, 866-OUR-VOTE, <laughs> hang on to that as you go to the polls. Absolutely. And I'll just say on this, so we're going to get to your introduction, but uh, <laughs> so, but I will just say on that, the league has volunteered with election protection um, for the past several elections. And I want to stress, like, if it is anything, call the number, right? Like, if you just don't 
feel like the way you were treated was the way it should have been or if they were turning you down and you aren't sure of the reasoning, like it sound like it makes sense, but you want call the number just to be safe. Um, we don't want anybody to feel like they were um, unfairly treated or turned away um, for reasons that don't make sense. And so that is what the hotline is there for. That is why those lawyers are there to really be able to walk through what happened and to assess themselves what is and what should and should not be. So if you have any questions or concern at all, um, please don't hesitate to call. Now, Back yes. to you, ma'am. Yes, I will hop back into the <laughs> format of the podcast, but I couldn't let the, the opportunity That's pass right. to make sure that we mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, my name is Amber Duke. I'm executive director of the ACLU of Kentucky. My story and how I got here, you know, it's like, you know, life's a journey. And we, <laughs> we think, you know, we might have decided whatever our path was, and then life takes us on the journey that it does. So um, I'm from southern Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, my family's from New Albany for several generations. Like many folks who live in southern Indiana, the Louisville metro area, mm-hmm. you know, would come and eat and shop and did a lot of living in Louisville. Um, and my dad worked for 40 years at, um, Baptist hospital East before Mm -hmm. retiring. Um, I really felt a part of the city and a part of Louisville when I was in eighth grade and I started going to the black achievers program at the Mm -hmm. chestnut street YMCA with Mm -hmm. Lynn Johnson and all of that wonderful crew over there. And so really in middle school, I started to build a lot of relationships here in Louisville, meet people, um, and, and just fell in love with and became really connected to the city. Um, I really fancied myself a, you know, big city girl that was stuck in the small town of New Albany. And so when I graduated high school, um, I was like, I'm moving. Um, I went to NYU for undergrad, Mm -hmm. um, majored in communication studies with a focus in broadcast journalism. And I wanted to work in television news. I didn't know if I want do I want to be a reporter? Do I want to be a producer? Like, I didn't really know what I wanted to do mm-hmm. enough to go to journalism school. I knew I wanted to be in the realm of communications. So I went to NYU. Um, while I was there, September 11th happened, mm-hmm. um, my sophomore year. And uh, needless to say, that was a really, my dorm was very close to the World Trade Center. I was, like, woken up out of bed when the first plane hit one of the towers and just went through a very traumatic experience at the age of 19. And that really um, changed my path and like adjusted a lot of my priorities. So um, I moved from sort of a posture of like, all right, I'm moving away to New York City. I'm going to live in New York and work in the number one television market and never, you know, I'll come back home to visit, but I'll never live there again Mm. to like, oh, all of my family's there. Um, you know, family's really important. New York mm-hmm. is really expensive. It doesn't feel safe here. Um, so after I graduated um, from NYU, I moved back home mm-hmm. and started working at um, a local station mm-hmm. here in town as a producer. And I was a producer for five and a half years. Mm-hmm. And again, once I got into that position, I'm like, all right, I'm going to work in news for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. I love this. This is great. Very quickly. Um, the orientation shifted from sort of like a news, you know, heavy investigative format to all of the breaking news that yeah. we see all over TV all the time and shootings mm-hmm. and stabbings and car accidents. And I really got to a point where I was like, this isn't why I wanted to be in news. Like I wanted to work to help people understand the world, why mm-hmm. it was root mm-hmm. causes, not you know, day in, day out, shooting, stabbings, car accidents, court appearances. Mm -hmm. So I made a shift um, and went to work at UofL at Mm -hmm. the Ann Braden Institute for Social Justice Research and was program director there for about three years. And again, I arrived at UofL and I was like, this is it. Like, this is such a cool space at Mm -hmm. UofL. You know, the institute is designed to bridge the gap between, you know, academic research and social justice activity happening in the community. You know, I'm like, I could work here for a long time. And then I was like, I could I could see myself working in the communications department at U of L. so many different spaces. Um, I started working on a and ended up obtaining a master's in Pan-African studies and was really just very happy at U of L. And then one day a job description came across my desk, which was uh, 
for the ACLU of Kentucky for communications director. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, this might actually be my dream job. You know, Mm -hmm. combining getting to do, um, you know, like be a practitioner in the work in, Mm -hmm. in, you know, civil rights and civil liberties work, but then also getting to have that communications component. And so in the ways that I would get frustrated of like, why doesn't the media cover this or this important thing is happening? I, I can be the person now in this role who mm-hmm. can like pitch these stories and work with reporters. Mm-hmm. So um, that was in December of 2012 that mm-hmm. I started working at the ACLU in that role and uh, was in the comms department about seven years. Mm-hmm. And then um, our organization tripled in size. I was the sixth person who was added to the staff. And really through the Bevin and Trump years, Mm -hmm. uh, Kentucky was sort of the canary in the coal mine, I think, when uh, Governor Bevin came and we started staffing up at that point because, you know, all of a sudden um, abortion access was under additional threat than it normally was. And so then Mm -hmm. we were filing legal cases. But then once, um, you know, President Trump came online, the ACLU nationally um, really grew very quickly. So Mm. our organization tripled in size. We went, you know, when I started, we were a staff of six. We Mm. have 17 folks who are on staff now. Um, And so I, and then at that point I moved into administration. So Mm. I was promoted to deputy director um, and was in that role for almost two years. Um, And then we had a leadership transition and I was an interim executive director for 18 months and Mm. was named permanent executive director this March. So Mm -hmm. um, never, in my wildest dreams, would I imagine I would even work in a nonprofit, let alone be a nonprofit executive director. But, you know, you have sort of the the thought of where you're going to land, and then you have where you're where you. Right. Policy and laws that affect our daily lives are being decided by the candidates we elect. We can't afford to believe that our voices don't matter. This year, let's walk away from the excuses and walk towards the polls. Register to vote by October 10th and show up on November 7th to vote in your local election. Volunteer with the Louisville Urban League and help us gather the voices of the community. Visit lul.org slash volunteer. Yeah, and what I I love about that story, because we talk about it on this podcast with lots of different people, is this idea of of life kind of being a journey, right? Like, and you f- and people figuring it out um, as they go. And you know, one of the fav- my favorite questions to ask um, just random people is like, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And that doesn't matter if you were six or if you're sixty, right? Like, you are always in this process of discovery. Um, and and I think that's always important. And I so appreciate you sharing um, your your journey in that way because. Oftentimes, I think with the way in which we do education now, we have given to kids this this myth that somehow by the time they leave high school, they should have it all figured out, right? right. Like, you should know what you're going to be. You should have a plan. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in this thing, and you're going to go. And, and, and it's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like, right. that is not what it is, and I think that it is such a disservice when institutions of education or educators in some instances or just people of influence – paint that sort of picture because we all are just moving from one place to the other um, as as life takes us, right? Right. So, right. Um, so I want to, um, one of the things I often ask uh, little villains, but you were close enough um, <laughs> that I think it, it still merits and I think it'll be kind of an interesting thing is how has this place, Louisville, Kentucky, or Kentuckiana, um, how has it evolved um, through your lens over the years from your time as a kid um, up to what you see now? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting, like the the Hoosier like, sort of like perspective or orientation on mm-hmm. mobile, like there is this way, you know, when you're in a small town and especially like being from a family that's been, you know, in the same town for generations, mm-hmm. there is this way that like you're known or your family's known and you just say your last name and it's like the other person that you say your last name to knows like four or five generations of your family's history and who was in jail and this and that and like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just like 
um, you know, and, and some it's, I've had experiences where it's like my family have these like distinctive split eyebrows. And so like, I've run, like I'm in the grocery store and people will, they'll say like, I'm not sure of your name, but I believe that you're Derek Booker's daughter. Right. And it's like, yes, you saw the eyebrows. Yes, that's me. So there is like that super, uh, sort of, uh, small town element. I do think that when I was, you know, in high school and thinking about a career and where am I going to go to college and all of those sorts of things, I think I did, you know, this this wasn't an area that I felt like had things to offer to me at the time. Like mm-hmm. I felt like I had to seek those things elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, once I moved back, and I, I think that like some of that is with age and a different perspective, mm-hmm. um, I really have seen a lot of opportunity. I've seen a lot um, of change that has happened. And I think that, you know, generally, I think that, you know, this is an incredible city mm-hmm. with incredibly dedicated, loving people. I mean, quite frankly, people who have like laid down their lives here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that there, there's so much potential. Mm-hmm. I think that there are just, there's so much that we could do with mm-hmm. the resources that we have, resources that we could bring into the city. Um, I think that we have to have strong leadership that can bring people together across their different issues, their mm-hmm. different containers, their different boxes to really start to dig at and make the connections between some of the the things that are happening. So um, I've just kind of seen that a lot in recent years. Um, I've been working a lot around the jail deaths crisis in Louisville. um, And that really opened, you know, my eyes to something as simple as like meeting a mother who had a bench warrant because she didn't have a car seat Mm -hmm. in in her car and so she was got it was cited Mm. didn't take care of it it ended up turning into a bench warrant and ended up you know in the criminal justice system ended up with a bench warrant hanging over her head which could have you know if she had a traffic stop landed her in jail Mm. into a facility that's in crisis where people are dying and i think that like it, it like takes something special to bring people around the table to say like okay this started with a car seat Mm-hmm. And sort of like, what are the investments and resources that we need to make at that level so that things don't, you know, rise and spiral and, right. you know, people get entrapped into a system. So I think that there's a lot of potential and I think that there's a lot of strategic sort of thinking, planning mm-hmm. needed for us to really kind of elevate to a new level. So what does, you know, you say could benefit that we could benefit from strong leadership and I wonder what does that look like for you in your mind like what is when you say we need strong leaders what are you expecting of those people so I mean you know the urban league is also a a nonpartisan organization Mm -hmm. as the ACLU is a nonpartisan organization and so you know I think that like there's a way that we as leaders interact like across lines of difference, across political parties, Mm -hmm. you know, with different or organizations of different sizes, what have you, that a lot of leaders don't, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're a leader within a political party, you know, like there's a container that you're really working in. Mm -hmm. Um, I respect that and that container has to be there. Mm -hmm. But I really think to like get to the solutions that we need for a lot of things, Mm -hmm. we really need folks to be able to like, Think and be willing and to make concessions, to right. think outside of the box, to be able to say like, hey, I'm not going to be able like here. Here is the list of 100 things we're not going to be able to work on. Like, let's just accept that. Mm-hmm. Here are two things that we can work on where we can bring resource to where we can bring, you know, needed thought partnership. Like, let's mm-hmm. work together and work on those two mm-hmm. things. Louisville Urban League's Kentuckiana Bills program is your introduction to the skills trades that lead to careers in construction, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, and HVAC. This six-week hands-on and technical education program provides training for job seekers to earn three national credentials, JCTC credit, all while connecting employers with a qualified, skilled workforce. 
This innovative partnership is funded by Kentuckiana Works and the Kentucky Education and Workforce Development Cabinet. For more information, visit lul.org backslash jobs. But does, so let me just pin on that. So, but does the container have to exist? Because I, because I, <laughs> And I asked this as somebody who was, I was a political science undergraduate oh, wow. manager. Okay. And so, so you've thought about this. A, a, a lot. And I think that in my lifetime, that container has evolved, right? Like, and it has, or it has, I should say, I think that container has been strengthened or more, um, more clear, um, or perhaps opaque is the better way. <laughs> um <laughs> than it than it was in the past. Like we have, we can, in our lifetime, we can point to clear places where the two major parties came together and said like, hey, this is what's in the best interest of the country. We're going to do that, right? And it feels like now um, there is less of an ability to do that. Now, Folks listening, don't get me wrong, because I'm sure there are political history buffs who will say, like, oh, it was far more entrenched back in the day when they would have duels and people were going out shooting each other. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. that is true. I understand that and I recognize that. But I guess what I'm speaking of is in modern times, it feels as though there is less of we have an ideological difference mm-hmm. which keeps us from compromising and seeing something and more so of I just exist over here and you exist over there and we can't have common sense conversations about what we both want it's just it's just going to be an us and them no matter what the issue is and so I just wonder like do we have to continue to live that way well, so I'm not, I was not a political science major and I don't, I don't think that we have to continue to live that way, but what we have now is a world where people cannot even agree on what facts are, mm-hmm. not even, they can't agree on the facts, but like all of the, uh, what, what was the phrase alternative Alternative fact, Facts. like mm-hmm. we can't even come together to mm-hmm. agree on the container or mm-hmm. if there is a container. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, social media is a part of that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that is not something that existed before I was a comms major. Mm-hmm. So like the fracturing of, of media and, you know, the rise of conservative media and, you know, all of the different ways that we we have it is much, much easier now mm-hmm. for us to create and sort of curate our, the type of information that we take in, our circles of folks that we pay attention to and listen to. Um, and so will we always live like this? No, I don't, I don't think that we're in a sustainable mode. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, our democracy will crumble yeah. uh, if we continue on the trajectory that we're mm-hmm. on. So I very much hope that something happens and this changes dramatically. Mm-hmm. So as a, but as a communications person, I do wonder is, is a huge part of this simply misinformation? Um, there's another staff member who would just say that people are just dumb. Um, but <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, well, is it a lot of it, it has to root is rooted in misinformation? I mean, and, some of it is misinformation, but quite frankly, it's disinformation as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll say, you know, the, and what's the difference? Well, so I think that it is one thing to for information simply to be wrong or mm-hmm. like, hey, we did this study about this thing or I'm trying to. There was an example recently of um LMPD, there's like a state report that came out about crime statistics Mm -hmm. and a reporter flagged some discrepancies between LMPD data that they had pulled from open records request and what was showing up in this report. And LMPD came out and said, actually, none of the numbers that are in this report are correct. We're going to have to be back in touch with state officials to make sure that we feed the right data in. Mm -hmm. So to me, that would, that's an example of like, if I have quoted that, if I have used that information that was in the original port to like inform my beliefs, there wasn't, there wasn't an intent Mm -hmm. 
right. to give me bad or incorrect information. Mm -hmm. It's something that happened mm -hmm. as opposed to disinformation, which quite frankly is something that we deal a lot in terms of the Kentucky General Assembly, mm -hmm. where, for example, um, this past legislative session when we were working on Senate Bill 150, which was sort of the omnibus anti-trans legislation that that passed through the General Assembly, we had Kentuckians, trans Kentuckians, who were testifying about their experience with hormones, about their experience with medical care treatment. And we had leadership just saying like, that's not true, or you're lying, or this person who's from out of state, who clearly mm -hmm. has an agenda, who's sharing this information about what happened to them, that's the truth. Mm -hmm. And that to me is disinformation. Mm -hmm. The folks who are who are putting this information out to the public, putting it out to their constituents, know that it is not true, mm -hmm. and they are moving for it, forward with it anyway, mm -hmm. whether that's in my, it is to build political power. Mm -hmm. um, and that is extremely dangerous, and there's a lot of that that goes on. Absolutely. One other example, and I talked about this on a previous episode, um, this number that's been has been floated around by people around weapons in JCBS, 530. For everybody who's listening, if you hear that number come across that number, it is completely false. It is not true. It is nowhere near true. Um, don't know where the number came from. Don't know where it is. But there have been several people, both in Frankfurt as well as even around this city, who have been spouting that number um, in rooms full of other people who make decisions. Um, and that sort of stuff is, and I don't, I don't know whether that that is disinformation or misinformation, or a combination, uh, or a combination of both. Um, but it is absolutely a problem um, that we have to wrestle with, and I, I agree. It makes getting to solutions, equitable solutions that work for everybody, so much harder when you're having to fight against um, just bad input and right. bad information i think that is it's it, it just it just makes the job so much worse um so i want to talk a little bit about what does the aclu do what is the aclu and how do y'all work and what exactly are y'all about sure so aclu stands for american civil liberties union we are the Kentucky affiliate of the national organization. The national ACLU is just over 100 years old. Um, the ACLU of Kentucky is coming up on its 70th birthday here wow. soon. So we've, you know, we've been hanging around the block here for a while. Um, the ACLU's mission is to protect and expand people's constitutional rights under the Kentucky Constitution and the Constitution of the mm -hmm. United States. So we're talking about freedom of speech, um, all, you know, all of the things that are enumerated, mm -hmm. we're working on those. And then we also are very interested, you know, we always say that like our Constitution really has always been a promise, right? Mm -hmm. It's this beautiful document. It says all of these beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And always, different groups of people at different times have been excluded from mm -hmm. being able to access the rights and protections that are there. Mm -hmm. And so um, part of the work that's really important for us is making sure that those who traditionally have been left out, folks from marginalized communities, black folks, women, brown folks, immigrants, LGBTQ folks, have the opportunity to access those rights. And so we do that uh, many different ways. We mm -hmm. do public education, sort of know your rights work. So mm -hmm. going out and like helping people learn about their constitutional rights. Um, we do advocacy work. And mm -hmm. so I have mentioned some of our work within the Kentucky General Assembly. Um, we have an advocacy director. We have two policy um, strategists. We have a community engagement person. Um, those folks are in the capital. They're working sort of at like the city level across the state, um, working on policy, working with lawmakers at various forms of government. Mm -hmm. um, we do both defensive work and, of course, with the current political environment in Kentucky, with a lot of civil rights and liberties being rolled back or being under attack, we're doing a lot of defensive work. Um, but we also do proactive work 
where we're trying to um, advance rights and liberties. Mm -hmm. We also have a legal program. And I think if folks have heard of the ACLU, most people think that everyone that works for the ACLU is a lawyer. <laughs> everyone that works for the ACLU is not a lawyer. I'm mm -hmm. not a lawyer. Um, I work with I work with lawyers. Um, not everyone that is a lawyer at the ACLU of Kentucky actually works in our legal program. So, mm -hmm. um, but the ACLU also litigates, and that's mm -hmm. something that um, makes us unique from a lot of other social justice organizations. You know, we, you know, kind of consider ourselves sort of a full service organization. Of yeah, we're going to work with you. Um, on the policy at the state house, we're going to tell you all of the problems. We're going to tell you the ways that it's unconstitutional. We're going to try to work with you to change it. And then if you don't change it, then we are going to be filing a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, we do have a legal program that litigates as well. Um, the ACLU of Kentucky, interestingly, um, for most of its history, was really just a totally volunteer-led organization. Um, for 25 years, the ACLU of Kentucky had volunteer legal counsel wow. um, that filed our cases. So it was pretty late in the organization's history before we had any professional staff and then even had, you know, a legal director that was filing mm -hmm. cases on behalf of the organization. Um, our affiliate of the ACLU actually started um, with Carl and Ann Braden and the Wades. Mm. Um, and so... Folks that are listening to this are likely familiar with the story of the the, the uh, Wades and the Bradens, but essentially the Wades, black family, um, trying to find housing, trying to purchase a home in Shively, uh, actually, and would get so far in the process, and then like once folks found mm -hmm. out like oh this is a black family, like suddenly the house wasn't available and they mm -hmm. were getting squeezed out, and so they approached the Bradens and said like look we've got the money to buy this house, can we just give you the money, y'all buy the house for us, and then like y'all sign the house over to us and we'll move in. The Bradens did that. They're like, sure, no big deal. They did it. Uh, the Wades moved in. Once the neighbors discovered like, oh, these are not the folks move, like moving the furniture into the house for the white family. They're actually moving into this house. A terrible series of violent acts. The mm -hmm. house was firebombed. Um, the Wades ended up having to essentially abandon the property. Mm -hmm. But instead of sort of investigating who's firebombed this house, there was a rock that was thrown through their window. Um, attention turned to, like, how did this happen? And it's like, who who are these white people mm. who facilitated this? Mm -hmm. And so um, the Bradens were charged with sedition mm. um, for attempting to overthrow the government of Kentucky. Uh, wow. It was so destabilizing, you know, for, for this house purchase to be made. And that's when the ACLU of Kentucky came together when folks who were really concerned saying like, look, we, you know, they'd known of the ACLU nationally, but said like, look, this is like really scary, mm -hmm. you know, that the government is going to like, charge someone with sedition and like they're facing prison time for this action mm -hmm. and so they came together and chartered um, an ACLU affiliate so that they could get support from the national ACLU and provide legal representation for the wow. Bradens so um, the history of the ACLU of Kentucky is like I mean it just comes from housing segregation in Louisville wow. um, fast forward to today we are a multi-issue organization mm -hmm. um, our top issues um, and the main things we have going on right now, reproductive freedom is a huge issue for us. Mm -hmm. And um, we've litigated over the past several years of the various abortion bans that are in place in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, right now, abortion is banned in the state. We are seeking a patient plaintiff in order mm -hmm. to challenge that state ban. So we attempted to challenge it representing the clinics. Mm -hmm. The Kentucky Supreme Court said, the clinics, the doctors don't have standing to bring this case on behalf of their patients, which was unprecedented ruling. Um, but they said a patient has to bring has to bring this challenge, and so we are seeking a patient plaintiff um, to challenge that state ban. No, forgive me, and I know they weren't yours, but weren't there three women? Um, I think they were all dealing with IVF um, who have filed where. That is correct. That is a separate case. Mm. We are not, so I can't give an update on yeah. where that case is. Um, it's my understanding that that case was more of a preemptive action. So mm. these are folks that are not currently pregnant. 
um, or, you know, having, and and it's unclear if they would need abortion care as part of their IVF services. Correct. Um, For our patient plaintiff, we are seeking someone who is a Kentuckian, who is pregnant, who is seeking abortion care, who currently will have to flee the state of Kentucky in order to receive that care. Wow. Um, Justice reform, Mm -hmm. we call it smart justice in ACLU world. Um, it is a huge area of work for us. And I know my former colleague, Representative yeah. Katora Heron, was yeah. on the podcast recently talking um, about some of that work mm-hmm. um, and First Amendment work. We have um, a really uh, big case that um, a lot of folks don't know about, Freeway folks, I think, know about it, um, where we are, we are actually suing the Louisville Metro Police Department. Our co-counsel is the NAACP Legal Defense Fund mm. um, for the attacks on peaceful protesters Mm -hmm. during 2020. And so, you know, folks saw all of the horrific scenes of people just indiscriminately being gassed and pushed and all of the awful things that happened. And so we are suing the department, looking for some policy changes um, so that people can peacefully protest. Yeah. And so, I don't know, can you share where you are in that um, suit? So um, we're just coming out of the discovery phase, meaning okay. everybody sharing all their information right. and emails and videos and all of those different things. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we have um, done some deposition work in mm-hmm. the cases. And so, um, I mean, I will say that that's, that's one of the interesting things about this work. It's both fast and sometimes it Very is also slow. really slow. So we filed that particular case in 2020. Mm-hmm. As we said here, it's 2023. Right. Um, you know, we ha- there's one case that's um, on our docket, which finally it looks like we're going to wrap up, but it, was, it started in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has been on our docket in some form or fashion for 23 years. So it's one thing that... You know, one of the things that I'm really proud of, you know, about the ACLU is just that, you know, we we do we have the stamina, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. We, you know, like with the national organization being around for over a hundred years, you know, it's like we we have the stamina to sort of like be able to bring these challenges and see them through, and often it is a long haul to see them all the way through. Yeah. So, um. I think you talking about these things begs question because I think a lot of people do know the ACLU for like suing people, right? <laughs> um, and that's, uh, I mean, we, the Urban League, partnered with the ACLU during back in 2020 to sue yep. the government around voting issues. So, um, yes, I, I should have mentioned that. Yes, yeah. we did. <laughs> and we won, people. Um, but uh, it's part of why you still have early voting. But um, I, I guess I, I think a lot of people are wondering, like, how then does somebody who feels that they've been wronged or harmed, how do they get to ACLU to to help, right? That's a good question. I think that it's, so we attempt to take cases because of how long they take, because of the amount of resources mm-hmm. that they take. And, and the posture of our cases, our adversary is the government right. or government entity. Um, and so we do have a lot of people who come to us who say, like, hey, my landlord, hey, you know, like I work at Corporation X and I post on social media and I've mm-hmm. gotten in trouble for this and they're violating my free speech rights. And we say, oh, my gosh, we're so sorry. We can't help you if the government, you know, was sent, you know, yeah. like then we can help. So um, that's one thing for folks to note that it's sort of governmental abuses of civil liberties are sort of. That, that's our bucket or mm-hmm. container. We'll keep using yes. the theme of containers for the conversation. <laughs> um, so that's our container. Um, we are a small shop. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a legal director, a senior staff attorney, a staff attorney, and a legal fellow right now. That's mm-hmm. as large as our legal team has ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a small docket. We are selective about the cases that we take. We want to take cases 
that are going to have sort of the maximum impact. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we take on, you know, cases like um, our challenge to the medical portions of Senate Bill 150, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have um, seven families that are, that are clients on that case directly, but we're taking that case on mm -hmm. on behalf of the thousands of trans kids in Kentucky. So we really try to um, make the most impact sort of out of the cases that we take. Um, we do have a legal intake process. Folks can go to aclu-ky.org, and there's a little button that you can press to request legal assistance, um, and people can fill out a form, and we can see if we can help with their case. But, um, you know, it's like different things come from different places. We, we had the voting rights challenge um, during covid um, we had an interesting lawsuit. Unfortunately, we were not successful where we were actually suing to get um, some really vulnerable um, folks that had respiratory issues mm -hmm. out of the Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women mm -hmm. um, during COVID. We did a we we really took on a really big um, piece of like body of work mm -hmm. um, during COVID, especially around um, COVID and conditions in jails. So. Um, our cases sometimes are, are driven by a health pandemic, <laughs> are driven mm -hmm. by, um, you know, what's coming down from um, the General Assembly. Okay. Um, you know, in thinking about these cases, and you just talked about one that you all unfortunately didn't, didn't win, and some of these that take an incredibly long time, I think there can be a sense among activists but also just among people who are kind of sitting back and watching like it's you this ain't working <laughs> right yeah. um and i wonder like because that's not really the reality and so i do wonder if you can share like where are some of the bright spots right like where have um you seen whether it be the aclu nationally or the aclu here in kentucky um make some real strong headway when your child enrolls in Kumon, they can reach math and reading mastery that will allow them to have a lifetime of advantages. Kumon is an academic achievement program, preschool through high school, the world's most successful after-school learning program. To enroll today, contact us directly at 502-552-0014. Wellington Kumon, located at 3610 Mall Road, next to Target in the Newburgh area. Sure, I mean, I mean, I'd say a lot of things. I think um, there was a really great video, and I can't remember if it's on our website or not, so I'm not going to, it could be on National's website, but there was a great video um, that we put out of, of sort of like highlighting some of the ACLU cases over the years. I think it is still the case that the ACLU writ large, whether, you know, if, if we have things that go to the United States Supreme Court, like from states, you know, the national organization supports the states in that litigation, um, but the ACLU is kind of the most frequent um, litigant who is standing before the Supreme Court on a lot of constitutional issues. And so, um, you know, the same-sex marriage, um, you know, Loving v. Virginia, there are so many historic cases um, that are ACLU cases, and I think that our country and really even our state would look really different if there wasn't an ACLU there. Um, I think, you know, for a number of years up until recently, we were very successful in, whole, in, in sustaining abortion access in the state of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, reproductive freedom has been under heavy, heavy, heavy attack for a number of years in the mm -hmm. state. And it wasn't until, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe that we lost our ability um, to have mm -hmm. abortion access here in the state. Mm -hmm. um, I think, too, you know, people, I don't know how much people know about our um, policy work, but um, a couple of bills, I'll just shout them out because I got to work on, on them <laughs> personally. Even though I was a comms director, I, mm. I was like, hanging out with the advocacy team, but um, felony expungement here in Kentucky um, 
was the first bill that I really had a hand in getting over the finish line. Hmm. Um, and of course there were lots, you know, people had lots of feelings about the first version of expungement. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were kind of like, y'all we know and like, trust us. We've, we've got to get something passed. We Mm -hmm. have to be able to demonstrate the sky is not going to fall and we're going to come back to them and we're going to keep pushing them to do better. Mm-hmm. And so we've had some versions. There's still some problems with it. We're still, we're coming mm-hmm. into this next legislative session. We're going to be working with y'all yeah. and your policy team as well. That's right. Um, working on clean slate mm-hmm. around expungement. Um, but that is something that I'm really proud of that was the first sort of like, you know, I was at the bill signing and I have my little pin from the mm-hmm. governor around that. The other is um, pre- protections for pregnant workers in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we face some controversy. Um, Representative Attica Scott was actually the first person who had filed that legislation in the House, couldn't get it to move. Um, and we ended up having, um, she's now retired, Senator Alice Forgy Kerr, mm-hmm. ended up filing that bill in the Kentucky Senate. And it ended up being a story in the New York Times, actually, of you know, that was the same time the 20-week abortion ban was coming through, and Mm. she was a big supporter of that, and we obviously were opposing that, Mm -hmm. but she was working with us to get pregnant workers' protections passed, and we kind of, you know, say to folks that, I put pro-life in quotes, Mm -hmm. um, said, like, hey, like, put your money where your mouth is. Mm -hmm. Like, here's a package of protections for pregnant folks who are working that'll lead to healthy pregnancies, and so if you're pro-life, certainly you would support this and work with us (laughs) on this. Um, And she took up the challenge, and we got those protections passed and over the finish line. So, um, you know, as you talked about sort of like response from others or like, Mm -hmm. hey, this is slow, I think that there are, as the ACLU is nonpartisan and we take very seriously, especially in this political environment, that in order to get some things done, um, we're going to have to work with some folks. And Mm -hmm. like you and your lane and your organization may not ever work with these folks. And we just say, like, we just ask for trust because, like, when we're in, I'll go back to our container, but when we're in this container together Mm -hmm. um, as social justice organizations, like, know that we are together and that when we have the ability to move in this lane, Mm -hmm. um, please trust us that we are, that we're doing so with the same goals that you have in mind. Um, And... You know, some people know, like some people don't want to go to Frankfurt, and I don't blame them. It's a tough place. It's stressful. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a very friendly environment. Um, but we're happy to step up and sort of work in that in that playground. Yes, absolutely. And you all have been have been wonderful partners and advocates, and have shown yourselves worthy of our trust. And we always appreciate that. And I think what you what you say here, particularly around court cases and suits and how we get things changed, I think it's always important to to recognize that there has to be a strategy for this, right? And I always go back to um, what the Legal Defense Fund did really in getting us to desegregation, right? Like most folks think that, oh, there was just this one case and it just happened. And it was like, no, they literally went and picked cases all around the country in order to build precedent to get us to a place where ultimately you get... um, a Brown B. Vore type of type of decision, and so it takes a long time and a lot of hurt, a lot of hard work, um, and certainly a lot of strategy and thought. But um, we do get there as long as everybody knows, you know, what direction we're headed in and, right. and what we're trying to get to. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate that that reminder. I want to talk a little bit, and you talk touch some on um, the uh, expungement work, but. Uh, what other things around criminal justice or smart justice um, are you all looking at? What are kind of some of the hot button issues um, on deck? Well, certainly as we have an election coming up, there have been some pretty scary, um, you all wrote a really good policy statement about uh, the really scary criminal justice proposal. Yes. uh, Vision. Uh, dystopian nightmare, I would call it. Uh, <laughs> See, I should have put that in there. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a. It was pretty jarring just yeah. to read through some of the um, proposals that folks want to move forward with, and so we're in a moment um, where there are folks who want to shift back to 
the tough on crime era, Mm -hmm. which talking about misinformation and disinformation, we have a lot of research. We know the numbers. We know um, all of the failures and results of sort of all of that package of policies, procedures, approach to criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really scary to think about um, our elected leaders wanting to turn back to that model. So right. certainly, and of course, we'll be working uh, alongside you all at the Capitol. Um, we will be doing a lot of defensive work trying to turn some of that back. Yeah. And I, I just want to say, so we're talking about the proposal that was made, I don't know, three, four weeks ago or something um, by some Republican representatives um, around lots of different um criminal justice type issues, some some incredibly bad policy ideas. And, you know, you make the point about all of the research and data. And this is why, you know, and you didn't say this. I am saying this now. And other people say this, that, you know, we sometimes it feels like people are just dumb. Um, <laughs> and I say that because it's either you are dumb or incredibly inhumane, right? Like, because we do have the data. We do know um, that these types of tough on crimes, over-policing, um, long sentences, three strikes, all of those types of things that are being proposed, we know they don't work. Right. Like, we've seen it happen in other states. We've seen it done. And we know that it doesn't work. We know that it doesn't reduce crime. It doesn't deter bad behavior. And all it does is actually make things worse and puts people in incredibly harmful ways. Like, the data is abundant there. And so either you are un able to comprehend the data or you simply don't want to and you just want to do bad things to people and so Mm -hmm. i don't know that there's another option but that's why people use the term dumb and i don't think that (laughs) it's a bad fit in this case so i but to that i wonder particularly locally right like Mm -hmm. how do we defend and protect right like what um you know, I was with Mark Morial, National Urban League president and CEO, um, and he's, you know, he talked about one of the things that we have to do is is protect the ground that we currently have, right? Like, even though it feels like it's shrinking, um, we've got to really play some strong defense. And so how do we do that um, locally? Yeah, I mean, I do think that that, like, you know, we don't, I, I talk to my team about this all the time, right? Because again, in the political environment we have in Kentucky, a lot of the work that we do is defensive. And I challenge myself and my team to think about as we're doing this defensive work, what sort of power are we building proactively? Mm-hmm. So it's not just always like us back on our heels, like trying to fend them off, mm-hmm. but like, who are we training up to come behind us? What voice, what new voices are we adding to the conversation? Are we getting more people out to vote? Are we getting more people involved? Um, in, in our fight back, are we, are we able to make a difference, some level of difference for folks today with an eye toward, you know, what are the fights that are coming in the future so that we, like, don't go here again? So, right, there's a little bit of that. And, you know, the ACLU... Um, that's sort of one of our mantras is that it, it, the quote is eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here we said in 2023, I think most people who uh, are ACLUers um, probably thought decades ago, a uh, hundred years ago, even that book bans in the United States, they're probably like, we took care of that. That's not an issue now. Okay. Like you don't have to worry about it guys. Like let's, you know, like we're going to move forward with all these other things. And here we are in 2023. Here I am getting calls this week about, you know, um, a county that's pulled a hundred plus books off the shelves in their libraries because they think that they're complying with Senate bill 150 and public libraries are afraid that book that school based library policies are going to start applying to public libraries. And so as part of our Hmm. preparation um, for the legislature, we're like thinking about book bans. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is very true that we, we, we have, we can't just check things off the list and say like, okay, we did that. We can move on. Mm -hmm. We have to, People's memories are very short. 
Yeah. <laughs> People's memories are very short. And uh, certainly one of the things that we've learned mm. um, is that, you know, and it's challenging, right, when you're banning books and uh, criminalizing different types of education and CRT and all of the panic over that. Um, but when we don't know our history mm. and we're sort of acting without historical context and we're making mm -hmm. uh, determinations about people based on, you know, just sort of like the conditions that we see without any of the context, that's a very dangerous place to be, which was, was mm -hmm. sort of like my interest in like wanting to work into news and to be able to say like, you know, like all of the, you know, shootings aren't happening in one side of town just mm. because like folks that just happen to live there just happen to like guns more. Like, right. you know, like the life expectancy in that, you know, area of town is not mm. just lower than this area because it's just an accident, right? Mm. Like there is all of this context. And I think that um, we, we lose a lot of that. And of mm. course, if we're not going to allow our teachers to teach, mm. if we're gonna, you know, we don't want people's feelings to get hurt, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, all of this kind of thing, um, we are setting up to have leaders that aren't informed, who right. are going to misinform or disinformed, and, you know, they may not know that they're doing it. Absolutely. And, and I wonder, um, you know, we haven't talked about the some of the recent Supreme Court cases in particular, like affirmative action. Um, and what I think is, is interesting about that, and I've heard from some of the lawyers who worked on that case and who have been doing work after that, is the one of the things that was interesting, and I did not know this, is they said if you actually look at the ruling, not a whole lot has actually changed with regard to affirmative action, mm -hmm. right? That the that basically the Supreme Court kind of did this this legalistic things where they put higher education in some somewhat of a trick bag, in that they said, hey, you can still ask people about race and their racialized experiences and all that sort of stuff. You just can't use it as a criteria for selecting them. Well, so now the institutions are in this bag. Like, well, I can ask the question and I can use it, or but I just can't use that as a part of their thing, as a part of admissions, right? And so, not nothing, not much has fundamentally changed. But if they continue to ask the question, obviously somebody's going to say like, well, you use this in bias, and so they may open themselves up to suit um, to that. But all they have to do then is prove like but we didn't use it in admission. So I use that as an example to say a couple things. One, or to ask a couple things, in that um, what we've seen since the reaction, though, has been, at least in some spaces, kind of this massive rush to like pull away from all of the you know the the gains or progress we've made around you know diversity equity inclusion and all of that sort of stuff right like not only in institutions of higher education but also um, you know in corporation in corporate settings and all of this other stuff right like people took that ruling and they decided like oh no we gotta scrap all of this and it's similar to what you're saying that there are school districts who are proactively pulling books off of shelves <laughs> because they fear that it's going to land them in a lawsuit somewhere mm -hmm. and I, I guess I bring it these things up to ask kind of going back to what does you know good leadership look like and I wonder how you feel about the need for leaders to be willing to accept risk. And yes, that includes the risk of being sued, right? Like, because some of this is really hysteria for no reason, right? Like, sure. you, are, you are bracing against a fear, or you are, you are hiding from a boogeyman that may or may not even actually exist. And even if the boogeyman does exist, doesn't actually mean he can do something to you. And so... How much of good, sound leadership among all of us, whether that be elected officials, corporate leaders, philanthropic leaders, educational leaders, how much of that in your mind requires a measure of courage and willingness to face down risk? So what you're talking about, we talk about as chill. Mm -hmm. you know, folks may have heard the phrase of like chilling speech or um, we talk about it a lot in our work because we see it all over the place. We see it 
not only in these Supreme Court cases, we even see it as like a law might be proposed at the state house in Kentucky. It might make it through the Senate. Um, it it may not make it to the house. It could get a re- what what have you. But someone hears about it on the news, hmm. and they're like, "Oh, I thought that they banned whatever. Oh, I thought that they passed." And it and so I think you know I'm not I'm not. You'll have to have you've had Representative Katora Heron. Maybe she someone in the General Assembly could speak to this more from that perspective. But I do think that there are times when part of the calculus in either bringing a bill, in bringing a lawsuit, in bringing the conversation, whether it's local, state level, national form, is designed for that very reason mm. to chill the activity, right? Mm. So um, this case is a fascinating case for a lot of, a lot of reasons. Um, it, it does raise these sort of big questions that we've been having as folks that work in the legal field, um, just about the general distrust in the courts and the erosion of trust in the courts and mm-hmm. obviously with particular Supreme Court justices. and mm-hmm. um, But even, you know, here in Kentucky with a lot of um, the folks that President Trump was able to get um, into the federal court system, and these are folks that are going to be in the system for you know, a generation or more, mm-hmm. um, there has really the sort of norms of legal jurisprudence mm-hmm. are really shaky. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we always say like the courts aren't going to save us. We might be able to find some measure of relief in the courts. Um, and increasingly as day by day goes by, you know, that measure of relief that we can find through the legal process, it, it narrows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, those strategies that you talked about of the past of the, you know, like the NAACP and, you know, the strategy and like bringing these cases, um, when we have a Supreme Court that is just completely throwing out precedent, Roe is a great example of that, mm-hmm. um, it, people are shedding or like unsteady and shaky. And, you know, how do we, how do we sort of mm-hmm. operate within this realm? It's very different than we have before. Um, I think you're exactly right about some of the, you know, it was really, it was narrow. Mm. Um, interestingly, some of the history of how that case got brought, there's a, a gentleman um, who tried to challenge, the, has, has been trying to uh, bring this challenge for a number of years and many had many different faces that brought this challenge, including mm. I think it was a white woman from Texas at one point in time, and that mm. didn't make it. And purposefully uh, to have Asian folks mm-hmm. bring this, right, to have to, to help create this division within communities of color around this policy mm-hmm. ends up what is ultimately successful and gets this ruling. I think you're exactly right. I think, like, these are the moments when people have to have courage. Mm-hmm. I think also... We're in an environment, look, academic as, uh, institutions have general counsels, mm-hmm. right? And the general counsel's job is to be extremely cautious and protective of the organization, right? Mm-hmm. It is their job to say, no, professor, I don't want you to do that because mm-hmm. I don't want us to get sued. No, mm-hmm. provost, I don't want you to put that statement out or I don't want you to do that because... I don't want our fund, our state funding to get pulled. Mm-hmm. I don't want this foundation to pull their funding. I don't want it. Like that is the job of the general counsel mm-hmm. to do that. And we're in an environment where everyone has a lawyer, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so they, not only does this come down, people are receiving this, this advice to really be like, we have to be cautious. We have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that, right it does take courage to Mm -hmm. say like okay actually this is what the ruling says Mm -hmm. um you know a student can write an essay and talk about their family experience and if they mention their race is part of that and that essay is part of why we decide for them to come to the institution that falls and is fine underneath the policy Mm -hmm. um and so i think it does take courage though in a different orientation Mm -hmm. um, for folks who are like protective as mm-hmm. they should be, institutions need that. Yeah. Um, 
to sort of to step out there. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about um, GCs in that one, in, in my years of working at an institution, I had a general council member um, say to me, and he did acknowledge that he was probably in the minority of his peers, but the thing that he would always advise to presidents and provosts and others was that not to, to not do something simply because you were going to get sued. He said... He, he said that his job was actually to protect the institution or to defend the institution in the event of a lawsuit. And so he would always counsel people, or it was as he told me, he said he would always counsel people to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And if the right thing gets you sued, guess what? There are some things worth being sued for. Oh, well, I need this general counsel in my <laughs> so, life. I have not had that general counsel yet. <laughs> oh, he did. He acknowledged that he was in the minority. He was also very close to retirement. Uh, so all of those things may have been um, a factor. But I do. But I mean, those words have always stuck with me. And it's probably been 15 years or so since he said this to me. But he's like, there are some things just, that are just worth being sued over. Mm -hmm. Do the right thing. All right, before I let you get out of here, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody, which is, what is your hope for Louisville? What is my hope for Louisville? My hope is a Louisville that is a place where everyone can reach their maximum potential, no matter what. Well, thank you, Amber, for being here. And, and let me just say thank you for all the work that you do um, individually, as well as all of the work that the ACLU of Kentucky um, has done in the ACLU nationally. You all have been incredible partners and advocates, allies, accomplices, um, all the things in the movement um, in helping to ensure uh, an equitable and thriving um, opportunistic say enough about you know what you all mean to black people but really all marginalized populations and the folks who oftentimes don't get seen so thank you for your work um, your allyship and your friendship um, in this and always know you have a partner um, in me and a partner in the Urban League and so I look forward to, to working with you and suing more people <laughs> <laughs> that it can be for everybody. Well, thank you so much for having me. All of that right back at you. I still am trying to figure out how as an interim executive director you have time to have a podcast. So I'm going to give you extra kudos because certainly when I was living the intermediate life, I had no time for a podcast. But I just appreciate this opportunity just to chat with you. Absolutely. No, this is therapy for me, so it's a must. <laughs> um, so it is absolutely necessary. That's where I went wrong. I should have. gentlemen thank you all for joining us this is listen up the louisville urban leagues radio show and podcast you can catch us every week um on thursdays at noon um wherever you find your favorite podcast be sure to subscribe rate us review us let us know what you think of the show again i am lyndon Pryor, uh interim president ceo of the louisville urban league i hope that you have a safe healthy and prosperous week go vote people go vote and we will see you next week League wants to make sure that every student thrives academically, and to make that possible, the league is offering free intensive tutoring to JCPS students who qualify. Kindergarten through 12th grade students can receive expert help in reading, math, and ACT prep. Kids like me deserve every opportunity to succeed in to reach our greatest potential. Sign your student up today. To learn more, visit lul.org or call 502-585-4622.